0: You're listening to the AbraMoney3.0 show, your guide to the future of all things money. Today's episode features a conversation with Abra founder and CEO Bill Barhide and Ethan Beard, SVP of Spring. Spring is an initiative inside Ripple focused on developing an ecosystem of XRP-related companies. Bill and Ethan discuss some of the challenges of building with cryptocurrency technologies and about how XRP's Protocol for Money aims to transform global payments. This podcast is powered by BlockWorks Group. For access to premier digital asset conferences and in-depth podcast content, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. Before jumping in, remember, the information presented in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be used or construed as an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any of the financial assets discussed. Any opinions expressed herein are subject to change neither Abra nor any of the participants in this podcast make any representation as to the suitability or appropriateness of these financial assets for individual investors. And with that out of the way, on to the show.
1: All right, uh, Bill Barheit here. Welcome to another episode of Abra's Money 3.0. I'm really excited about today's uh, today's episode. Uh, With me here uh, in beautiful San Francisco is Ethan Beard, uh, SVP of Spring. Spring at uh, Ripple, which we'll get into uh, in a minute. So thanks for, for coming on. It's great to be here. Good morning, Bill. Oh, good morning. So we're going to talk uh, about Spring, which is uh, Ripple's uh, initiative to, to kind of create a, a developer platform maybe for, for money uh, and what that means. And, and we'd love to to first understand how did you get into this crazy crypto world and, and what was your circuitous or direct line route to this, to this crazy world? Sure. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. So I've been at Ripple now for about a year and a half.
2: Um, I've been working in tech my entire life. Uh, it was previously I was at Facebook, before that I was at Google, before that I was back on the East Coast. Um, and I've been really interested in blockchain and crypto for a number of years. Um, I actually did a stint as an EIR at Greylock Partners back in 2014 Okay, and kind of did a deep dive into into crypto and um, was really trying to understand like kind of the nuts and bolts of Had it. Had
1: Greylock made any crypto investments At, at that, that time, point? no. Yeah. No,
2: at that time, uh,
1: Zappo was definitely like, when this was around.
2: I remember that, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and kind of knew a lot of the folks there, but they hadn't yeah. made any investments at that. At and that, that turned point into in a
1: huge investment, like a series, like the, one of the bigger Series A I've I ever think seen. So right? I don't remember
2: the exact numbers, but I think it was pretty big.
1: Yeah, I don't know that they've ever even gone out for more funding. But at least think... they, if they did, they did it very quietly. Yeah, I don't
2: think so. I think they raised enough to get them get them through to where they are now. Yeah. Um, And so I dug deep into blockchain um, and was really fascinated with it. And I actually have a finance background. So years and years ago, I used to structure fixed income uh, derivatives. And so uh, I've always been kind of a yield curve junkie and um, spent a lot of time digging into like, what does debt look like? What does the risk-free rate look like? Does such a thing exist in blockchain? Um, And to be totally honest, didn't quite come to an answer that was satisfactory enough for me to do anything, but continued to follow it. Um, And then within a few years from that really was looking to dive into an operating role somewhere and I'd known a bunch of the executives here. I've known our CEO, Brad, for uh, probably a decade or more. Um, and in looking at blockchain, you know, the one thing I found was that it's really hard to understand it from the outside. It's really hard, as I've said, to minor in, in blockchain. Um, it's a pretty different technology than everything that's kind of come before. You know, I've been around since when it used to be floppy disks and then yeah. it was the internet and then it was mobile. And a lot of these technologies to me looked the same, right? It was either lots on the server or lots on the client, but generally it was the same thing. Blockchain is really just a very different type of technology, right? It's these distributed systems that kind of live out in the middle and and kind of nowhere in the cloud that no one really controls. Um, And trying to really get my head wrapped around it from the outside was pretty challenging. Uh,
1: But I knew there was something
2: there that was really fascinating. And so I decided the best way to get to figure it out was just to jump in with both feet.
1: Now, now you've worked for some pretty big kind of, like let's call them centralized monoliths, right? Yes. Google and Facebook. And the the whole idea of, of blockchain is to basically create a, a decentralized world for finance. So what does, that, what does that mean to you personally? Like what was exciting about that idea? So um, I, what
2: was exciting about it was there was a couple of things. The, the scope and scale um, and the ability to truly be these global networks uh, in the same way that what Facebook and Google had created. Uh, but in a way that was much more democratic and in a way that was really driven by, a lot by the open source community, which I've always been really interested mm-hmm. in, um, I just felt very, very powerful mm-hmm. um, and really exciting. And then I would say the, the aha moment, I feel like everybody has an aha moment in, in crypto and in blockchain for me, was really as I started to wrap my head around cryptocurrencies specifically, uh, and you start to realize that the entire financial system is basically built on a series of IOUs like every single, outside of me handing you a $20 bill, every other thing that's going on is us exchanging IOUs around in the
1: world. After barter, of course.
2: Yes, exactly. Um, And and so, you know, we came to this world where what used to be just a cash world, which is pretty straightforward and simple, right? I give you the 20 and you have it. Um, We then moved into the digital world where now it's all just this series of IOUs that we pass around. So if I, for example, wanted to Venmo you $20, uh, basically it's, me giving an IOU to my credit card company, who gives an IOU to Venmo, who gives an IOU to you, and you now have an IOU from Venmo, for me to give you that same $20. And understanding the world of credit, that there's a lot of complexities that kind of go go on in that, um, in terms of credit risk and identity, and you realize that you start to stack up all these IOUs and you end up with a really complicated system and you can understand why there's so many middlemen and why why it's so expensive. The other side, if I was to send you some XRP or some Bitcoin, I just send it to you. There's no middleman, you have it, looks a lot like cash. Um, And for me, that was kind of when the light bulb went off and said, well, this sort of technology fundamentally should change the way that money moves entirely. Mm -hmm. And it may not be at the top of the stack. It may not be like, I'm gonna send you some Bitcoin because you actually want to pay your bills in fiat Mm because right now you have to pay them in fiat. But as a core technology, Uh, It seemed like something that could really transform all of these other systems.
1: Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. So, okay, so let's get our, 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 you you started talking about IOUs. Let's get our our terminology down first so that we can have a kind of framework for for our listeners on this conversation. So we have Ripple, the company. Yes. We have uh, Spring, which let's call Ripple's initiative for now. And then explain what that means. And then we have XRP as the protocol itself. So let's let's separate each one and and make sure we're clear on what Ripple is, what Spring is, and and how XRP fits into all of that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So maybe it's helpful to go back a little bit in time, um, probably seven or or eight years ago, and the founders of Ripple, there were three kind of key founders, um, they saw Bitcoin come out and were really amazed by the power of what Bitcoin could be in terms of a vehicle for exchanging value as as money. Uh, in essence, uh, but at the same time, looked and said, "There's a lot of challenges with way that the way the consensus mechanism works, um, the kind of cost and time that it takes to actually move a transaction," and set out and said, "Hey, maybe we can build something better." Uh, and so they then went out and built the created the XRP ledger, which has we can get into the mechanics, but has a consensus mechanism that doesn't require massive amounts of electricity uh, and in essence, build a blockchain made for payments, made for moving money at its very kind of core principle. And so there are aspects of how the ledger works that look, that take into account money. So it has things like accounts or escrow that don't exist necessarily on something like the, the Bitcoin ledger. Um, and one of the other things about uh, this blockchain that they created was in essence, they kind of pre-created all of the cryptocurrency, the native currency to the, to the ledger, which is called XRP. Uh, so they created 100 billion XRP up front so they didn't have to go through the process of mining. Um, people call it kind of pre-mining. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they they set out and said, OK, we've got this ledger. What should we do this? We've got this cryptocurrency. It seems like it should be good for money. Uh, you know, if you look at the path that a lot of other crypto projects have, a lot of them have kind of put a lot of the currency into a foundation, mm-hmm. right, to have that kind of yep. drive it. Uh, and I think there were some of the early founders... Uh, had hesitations around a foundation as a way to actually drive forward a project, as a way to really uh, take ownership and, and, and execute against a strategy, and had much more faith in a corporation or in a business that where you can align incentives. And so then in essence, I like, created uh, what became Ripple Labs and put a large amount of the XRP into that company and said, okay, this company now, we've got this technology, we've got this blockchain, it's out there, We've got a bunch of XRP inside of it, um, Let's have that go execute against what we call the internet of value. And really that's looking, the, the way that we talk about it, our vision is really looking to have money, uh, it move in the same way that information moves. And so again, going back a little bit historically, cause I think stories are an interesting way. If we look at the internet, like I remember CD-ROMs, uh, I remember fax machines, and that was how information used to move. Right. And it was very slow and it was very painful. And along came the internet, it completely changed the way every information moves everywhere. If you look at money today, there are a lot of the same aspects. Uh, there are proprietary systems, uh, there are siloed networks, and it's very, very slow and very expensive to move money. And so what this leads to is a really bad experience for customers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's something on the order of $1.5 trillion a year spent on payments, in terms of fees right. to move money, it's crazy. Um, if you're a merchant, it can take you up to a month to get paid yep. from your merchant services provider, um, and so, and it's a bad experience for developers, which we can spend some more time talking about. But I think it's over 250 payment networks around the globe. So if you want to operate a global business, you need to figure out how to work with 250 different payment providers.
1: Yep. Yep. So so now so XRP is really trying to be this this native. Uh, digital asset and protocol slash ledger for what's called the internet of value and internet of money. And so how does that relate to now Ripple, the company, and, and spring the initiative? Sure. So we uh, fast forward
2: to uh, you know most recently, we really I've, look at XRP as this amazing settlement vehicle. Mm-hmm. So XRP is very, very fast. You can move a transaction in an order of two or three seconds. Uh, it's very, very cheap, close to free you know, fractions of a penny to move kind of any amount of value. Um, and so we really looked out and said, how can you take that and apply it to the world of payments kind of broadly? And we, we really have kind of two strategies for this. The first is kind of core Ripple strategy. So we have a product called RippleNet. Uh, it's an enterprise software product. We sell it to financial institutions and allows them to, in essence, focus on cross-border payments and easily tap into XRP to, have for, uh, to enable very fast, uh, international payments, cross-border payments.
1: Yep, yep. So now, um, bring this full circle, and see your initiative called Spring, or pre- uh, spelled X P R I N G, but Correct. pronounced spring, spring, if I have it correctly. Uh, and and how does Spring work? W- what is your what is your goal with Spring? Where are you in the kind of overall deployment of Spring now?
2: So about a year ago, a little over a year ago, we started to look out, and we've seen a lot of momentum with our core product, RippleNet. We now have over 200 banks. Um, kind of one of our flagship customers is a company called MoneyGram, which is really one of the the leading global uh, remittance providers and, and, and payment networks. Uh, and so that business is growing great, and we think cross border is a huge business. The amount of the amount of activity there is, is massive. Uh, at the same time, we think that XRP can be applied to a lot of other use cases. Mm-hmm. And so we started this initiative last year when I joined the company called Spring really focused on building a community and an ecosystem of companies that are tapping into XRP to really power global payments mm-hmm. outside of cross-border payments. I wouldn't say necessarily exclusively, we're interested in all payments, um, but really looking to uh, to not just have the single kind of focus on cross-border payments. Yep. So we started a year ago and there was just two of us on the team, And so we really set out and we started, in essence, doing investments and strategic partnerships with a bunch of companies um, in the space. So over the course of a year or so, we probably invested in over 20 companies. Mm -hmm. We've committed over $500 million in capital to a variety of different companies.
1: And how do you determine what's a good fit? What are the kind of sizes of investments you're making? And is that going to change over time? So we've written
2: checks that range from small six digit checks to nine digit checks. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we, a lot of it actually, to be honest, we've been trying to really sort out, we spent the first year really just trying to get a lay of the land, trying to understand how can we work uh, well with these companies, what's going on out there. And so uh, some of our investing was very specifically on companies that are directly using XRP. Some of it was also just investing in amazing teams that are working in interesting areas that we find fascinating, and teams that we wanna be able to work with in the future. And so that was kind of the process leading up into about a month ago. Um, well, one month ago, we announced a project that we started working on at the beginning of the year. And one of the things that we learned as we were meeting and investing in companies and doing partnerships is that while we believe that cryptocurrency and blockchain and in, in particular XRP uh, can really are really powerful in terms of impacting the way money moves, they're really hard to build on. And so if you're a developer, well, you are a developer in the crypto space, so you know how hard it is to build on, on cryptocurrency. Uh, it's really hard to build with these technologies. In fact, yep. even if you're a user, they're actually hard to use. My parents, when I joined Ripple, they probably spent a month pinging me every day saying like, hey, I want to buy XRP. I'm stuck in this wallet. I don't know how to do it. They won't, It's taking me days and days to get my credit card through. And they just want to buy it and hold mm-hmm. it. Yep. Um, and so what we set out to do is really make it much, much easier for developers to actually build on cryptocurrency. Yeah. And so we announced a couple of weeks ago, really the next evolution of Spring, and that's as a developer platform. And so we call it uh, an open platform for money. And there's a couple I can unpack a little bit. So when we think about open, it's really we're building open source tech, open source software we're built on open source software and we contribute to open source software. Um, we're building on open standards. Uh, and we're working with open networks. Uh, So that's kind of a lot of uh, our focus is really making sure that this is open, which I think is at the core, as you mentioned, of of the world of crypto and blockchain. Um, We're developing a platform, so we look to build tools to make it easy for developers, people who write code, to actually integrate money into their applications. Um, We work on providing services for developers to make it easier for them to actually understand what's going on and build on blockchain. Um, And then we'll also look to provide things like advocacy, support, capital, Mm -hmm. as we've done in the past. Right. And then importantly, when we think about money, we think about all money and not just XRP and even not just cryptocurrency, but most of the world operates in fiat. Right. And so we think that figuring out how to address the world of all money is how crypto is going to be most
1: most broadly applied. Do you see the intersection of the kind of banking customers of RippleNet's? Coming to with the intersection or or with the group of developers and platforms that you're uh, funding and supporting here into one big network over time. Meaning, uh, if I'm a wallet company that you funded in Timbuktu and I basically am sending money to somebody in the U.S., would that ultimately flow through like a B of A uh, based uh, customer or Wells Fargo customer that might be a RippleNet user? In the future, I think one way to think about what we're building is we have almost
2: uh, a top-down strategy, which is working directly with financial institutions, providing them enterprise software that's really customized for their world and lets them tap into the power of XRP. Then we have kind of a bottoms-up strategy where we're looking just at starting with XRP and other cryptocurrency, and then focusing on developers and letting letting them um, integrate XRP and integrate cryptocurrency into their applications. It seems to me that at some point they meet how and where they meet is kind of unclear but you know we think that you know i think it's not crazy to think that the vast majority of money should be in some way moving over cryptocurrency somewhere in the payment stack and where that meets will be interesting to see
1: yeah so so let's talk about a couple of use cases Uh, the one that everybody likes to talk about is uh you know cross-border money transfer you mentioned you work there with the banks uh remittances is something that i've spent a lot of time on personally both before crypto and, 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 and now at Abra. I think this MoneyGram deal could be actually transformative for our industry. And I don't think people really understand the commitment here that, that, that MoneyGram has, has made to to XRP. Can you, can you explain how that happened, how it came about and what's actually going to happen now going forward? So I don't work specifically on the MoneyGram side of the business. I
2: can provide kind of a, a high level aspect of it. Um, we've been talking with MoneyGram, they're obviously an important player in the, the global payments business for a long time. Yeah. One of the challenges that businesses like MoneyGram run into is that in today's world for you to complete a cross-border payment, if you're a company like MoneyGram, for example, and you have U.S. dollars and you want to send them into Mexico, into Mexican pesos, you in essence have to pre-fund money into an account in Mexico. So you take a bunch of money, a bunch of capital, you buy pesos, you leave it in a bank account sitting in Mexico. And then when you want to make a payment you do a Swift transfer, which are slow and don't have a whole lot of transparency. And then within a few days when it's confirmed, you actually can send that money out over the, the local rails. And so the two challenges there is like, one, it's very slow. Um, in essence, Swift looks like FTP, right. you kind of like send a text file off and hope that somebody gets it. Right. Um, and then two, you tie up a lot of capital just sitting there in an account.
1: Effectively, somebody's lending money to somebody else to make this process. Correct. Work, right. In fact, a lot of the, so there's, there's
2: three main banks in the cross-border um, cross border industry. And, you know, it's Citi, it's Deutsche, it's HSBC. Mm-hmm. And a lot of their business is, in essence, say they're like, we'll park the capital in some country. And if you want to borrow it, we'll provide you liquidity so that you can make the payment. Yep. And so what you end up is just with tens of billions of dollars just parked in all these accounts all around the world, not doing anything except for trying to remove friction from the cross-border payments or to speed them up. And so what you can do using RippleNet, in essence is tap into the liquidity of XRP. And so the way that an actual transaction works for an institution like MoneyGram, they take US dollars, they go to a local exchange here in the United States, a crypto exchange, they exchange those dollars for XRP, those XRP move across the ledger to a local exchange in Mexico, where that exchange turns them into Mexican pesos and immediately sends them out over the local rails? And so it, it eliminates the need to actually like tie up this capital that's sitting there, which for a company like MoneyGram, who's really big and quite successful, is actually quite capital constrained. Right.
1: Now, MoneyGram's volumes would, um, you know, uh, balloon to, to take over or they quickly take over the volume of a lot of exchanges, especially in developing markets, right? So so w- would they actually also act have to act as like a, a market maker locally to guarantee that there's enough liquidity for to, to, to that to work? Yeah, so the, you are getting at the heart of one of the questions, which is what does the liquidity look like between
2: let's say XRP and, the, and Mexican pesos, for example, right. in this right. case. Uh, and certainly I would say our business, Ripple's business changed when XRP liquidity increased. So if you go back six or seven years ago, and XRP in essence was worth nothing, and the daily uh, liquidity of XRP was close enough to nothing, you know, $100,000 a day or something, there's only $100,000 in liquidity, quite hard to move a million dollars in and out of it. Now on any given day, there's 100 to $200 million worth of XRP. And so it's much more liquid, but obviously with only $100 million in liquidity, you couldn't really move $500 million through it. So we are definitely, we work closely with obviously our customers MoneyGram, we work closely with our partners, the exchanges, and then we also work with market makers to make sure that there's adequate liquidity for the transactions that are coming through. Right. We do believe that as these businesses grow, market makers are naturally attracted to where liquidity begets liquidity. Sure, sure. And so I think one of the keys is just not spiking the system where you're moving prices really quickly.
1: Well, I think the ROI to MoneyGram sounds like it could be so high that they, in the worst case scenario, they'd probably gladly pay market makers to make sure that the liquidity was there, right? Yes. Um, so, so if I understand you correctly, it sounds like there's two things happening, right? So by not having to park all that money uh, or use correspondent banks, right? So the return on equity for them is much, much higher because they can use that capital for other investing activities for the company. If I'm MoneyGram, I'm not parking money, I'm using it for something else that has a higher return. Correct. And as a result, uh, I can also pass on cost savings, potentially over time, cost savings to consumers who may not actually even know that some cryptocurrency was involved in the transaction in the first place. Yeah. Which is this, something we've talked about Abra for years. Right. There's no
2: need for someone to know that there's cryptocurrency involved. Totally.
1: And they probably don't want to know or have to understand. Just like you don't know what SMTP is when you click send. Right. On your email. Yeah, exactly.
2: And you don't really know what, what, what protocols, when you swipe a credit card, like what protocols are rolling over. I think they're most proprietary, um, but it doesn't really matter to you as the end user.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Super cool. So, so do you think this is a... a a five-year deployment cycle or like an 18-month thing or that's what, a what do you think happens?
2: Very there? good question. I'll say one of the hard things on any of these businesses, both on the RippleNet side of the house and the Spring side of the house, is building networks is quite challenging, right? They're very strong when you have them built because they have strong network effects. Right. But as I like to tell my team, the person who invented the fax machine found it pretty useless because there was only one of them. And then the second person that bought one didn't find a whole lot of value out of it either. And so the, we tend to have seen historically that networks grow exponentially because the value gets uh, accrues so much faster when there's more people on the network. So I do think we're at the early stages, but when we're starting to see businesses like MoneyGram pouring on, it really starts to
1: attract a lot more. Gotcha. Fascinating. Well, I, I can't wait to see what happens there because that's a use case that's been near and dear to my heart for a long time.
0: Did you know you could get $25 in Bitcoin just for signing up and creating an Abra wallet? Abra makes investing in cryptocurrencies and other digital assets super easy. Try it today and learn more at abra.com goabra. Terms and conditions apply.
1: So so let's let's jump into a different use case that I, that I think uh, could also be really interesting for, for Spring. Let's talk about gaming. Um, what are you guys seeing in terms of like cryptocurrencies and blockchain overlapping with the gaming world? Is that a space you're actively investing in? If I'm a gamer or a, a wannabe gaming entrepreneur, uh, should I be excited about this? One of the things that I've witnessed, and I think lots
2: of others, is that gaming companies are often the first ones to jump on a new platform. We saw this on the web. We saw this on mobile. When I was at Facebook managing the Facebook platform, we saw it on on Facebook platform. A lot of the early adopters of the platform were gaming companies. Mm -hmm. And I think we're starting to see the same thing in the crypto space, and I expect we will. The game developers are very, very good at understanding precisely how a platform works, dissecting it, and then figuring out how to drive growth out of it. And one of the things that I think is most applicable in the gaming space was well, a couple aspects of it. Uh, first, when it just look at straightforward payments, uh, the experience that you have buying things inside of a game today, right? games are all in-app purchases, almost all virtual goods. And mm-hmm. both of these actually, I think, play to crypto strength. Uh, so you, when you buy an in-app purchase, oftentimes you're trying to buy something pretty cheap. So my son plays Fortnite, he wants to go buy a skin. Skins are not very expensive. Right? It might be like a dollar for a skin. Uh, but the way that the current financial system works over existing rails is that it doesn't work for Epic Games to charge my son a dollar because it costs them probably 30 cents to swipe a credit card. Right. So they, in essence, make him buy $25 worth of virtual currency That's or right, buy yeah. a whole basket. Sure. And so we think that actually the same uh, aspects of cryptocurrency, which is fast and cheap and can enable micropayments, can really shift the way that people buy things within games, and so you can go in and buy something, buy something for five cents. Uh, you know, you can buy something for ten or twenty cents. And so we think that's going to shift the way that people purchase things within mm-hmm. games. The other aspect I think is really interesting is this is outside of payments, but a lot of the the way the gaming business works today is developers are selling virtual goods uh, to users, mm-hmm. and so. Going back to my son, he has spent a fair amount of money over the course of the past year buying things within Fortnite. Mm -hmm. A few months ago, he came to me and said, I'm done with Fortnite and I'm moving on to Overwatch. And I was like, what do you mean? You you have all the, you have this character with all the stuff that you spent, that I've spent over the course of the past year, you're just going to abandon it. he's like, no one plays Fortnite anymore. Uh, I was like, I think a couple hundred million people do, but I get it. And so now all this value is just locked up inside of his account. He did say to me, he said, like, can I go on eBay and sell my account? And if you go on eBay, you can find Fortnite accounts mm-hmm. for sale. Yep. Yep. Uh, it strictly violates the terms of service sure. of the game of Fortnite. But there's obviously a demand for people who want to buy these virtual goods secondhand. And there's people who want to sell them secondhand. And what we're starting to see are companies that are looking to leverage the power of a blockchain to actually put these virtual goods onto a blockchain. So to put them into a smart contract to potentially restrict the number of them that are there and then enable people to buy and sell them yeah and what's really fascinating to me is that i think it will eventually shift the way the gaming developers monetize like it'll change their business model in the same way that actually mobile phones shifted from used to be paid to download now it's actually free to play in game in app purchases because of the form factor and the device i actually think when we start to see games that are built on blockchain the business model will shift from selling virtual goods to buying and selling
1: virtual goods. So so that brings up a really interesting question. People probably remember a year and a half ago, if you've been following crypto, the first really good example of any kind of like uh, digital asset that wasn't considered money that really got any traction was on the Ethereum network with this whole crypto kitty craze. And the timing was actually horrible from a network perspective, because as Ethereum and Bitcoin prices were screaming higher, um, the networks were saturated and people were spending insane amounts of money to move crypto kitties around, which were basically these digital collectibles. And is there anything there in that? So, so there's this, this Ethereum standard. I think it's called ERC 721, mm-hmm. which is like their digital collectibles so that you can define a certain number of crypto kitties and mine is you, guaranteed unique via the contract, whatever. Is that something that you can easily do in XRP and, and, and then avoid all of the scalability? issues around being able to do that with a network like Ethereum? So XRP Ledger today doesn't have kind of the smart contracts aspect um,
2: of the Ethereum public network. And so you can't issue those, I would call those non-fungible tokens. Yep. Um, you can't issue uh, the equivalent of a non-fungible token on XRP Ledger. Uh, you can issue fungible tokens, but not a kind of the non-fungible one. Gotcha. Uh, I, I think you're spot on in that, in many ways, CryptoKitties demonstrated to the world what could be done, but did have an unfortunate aspect of timing. And in many ways ran into the challenges I think many Ethereum developers are running into, which is when you're all building on the same compute network and the costs go up as more people build on it, that is a pretty challenging platform to build on. And so I think what we're going to continue to see is gaming companies or game platform companies looking at that solution, but customizing it and saying to a game developer, well, you may want to have a public chain where you can actually issue these things, you may want your own chain. Yep. And depending on performance, uh, depending on the size of your game, you may want one chain for your whole company, or you may be per game specifically. Gotcha. And so we actually partnered with a company called Forte,
1: mm-hmm.
2: which is uh, some folks that actually came out of the social gaming world. And they're building out a game platform to specifically do this, which is basically say to a game developer, uh, you shouldn't have to think about blockchain game developers really don't care about blockchain they care about games Mm -hmm. and if the good ones at least because it's pretty hard to make a good game right and so uh, trying to provide a platform where a game developer can come in and say like yes i just want to create these skins and i want there to only be a hundred of them and i want them to be badged by some celebrity and i want to be able to sell them for x price and also buy them back and not have to worry about like what chain is it on is it a 721 or is it on some other side chain and just kind of ignore all of that. And so I think when we start to see these sorts of platforms come into place, you'll see a lot
1: broader adoption from so game developers. So in that scenario, obviously you want XRP, uh, an incentive device for XRP to be the, the kind of protocol for money for the micropayments and the ability to move value around in the, in the gaming experience. And then, and then also at the same time, partnering with other blockchain projects that would uh, allow us to create these in-game assets and, other types of, of contract-based transactions that, that aren't necessarily about money per se, right? So you, you there could be scenarios where you're literally partnering with companies that have investments in two different protocols at the same time. Is that is that fair?
2: Yeah. we So we at Ripple and at Spring, uh, while we think that XRP is really great as a an exchange of value, we're not XRP maximalists. Mm-hmm. Uh, we think there will be, if you look over the course of the past decade, there have been more and more tokens and coins coming out in the world. And we think that's going to continue. And so one of the technologies that we're big supporters of is Interledger Protocol, Mm -hmm. which is really, it's an open standard for basically moving, I'll say any payment or moving any type of money. And so what we've actually seen, we've been supporting this protocol for a while is some employees here developed it and opened it up, took a number of years to get it to to the current version. But we've been pushing hard to make it easier to actually operate that network. And then you will actually see us. We released, for example, a a settlement engine in Interledger that supports Ethereum. Mm -hmm. So Spring employees wrote support for Ethereum, open sourced for the Interledger protocol network. And so we actually think that being able to support lots of different currencies and lots of different tokens is really important for broad adoption of these technologies. And ultimately, when we look at XRP, we think in the same way that if you look on RippleNet, when you're moving dollars to Mexican pesos, you're bridging through XRP because it's fast and cheap for settlement. We think that in the world of crypto, if you're moving from Ethereum into a CryptoKitty, maybe that's not a perfect example because we're on the same chain. But if you're moving from Ethereum into some virtual good that's on the Forte platform, yep. you should probably bridge through XRP Very as well. Interesting.
1: Okay. So, so as technologies like Proof of Stake prove to be scalable if they work then you basically provide the basis to have both uh, an interoperable payment network as well as the ability to create digital gaming assets and do other types of transactions that aren't necessarily financial in nature and have them interoperate in some way. Yeah, I think so. That's fantastic. OK, so so we talked about remittances and money transfer. We've talked about gaming. If I'm a you know, a, a young entrepreneur and I'm super excited about crypto and blockchain, what are the other killer apps that, that you think have yet to, to really been proven? Uh, in the crypto world that entrepreneurs should be thinking about?
2: There's a couple of areas that we're focused on. I would say, generally, when we think about Spring Platform, we're trying to, as I said, it's a platform for money. Right. Money turns out to be almost every kind of app and experience out there. And ultimately, we want to be able to enable those developers broadly. Um, We are focused on gaming as one area. We think it's going to be an early adoption. We're definitely focused on kind of core wallets and -hmm. exchanges because that today is where the primary use of of XRP and of of crypto Mm. is. And so one of the things we're really interested in in the wallet space is enabling interoperability amongst wallets. And so if you actually look kind of globally on consumer facing digital wallets, basically there's, I haven't done the math, but there's dozens and dozens and dozens of them. Um, They are completely siloed. Mm. So Venmo and PayPal owned by the same company if you're on Venmo and I'm on PayPal, we can't send each other money. Crazy enough. Right. Uh, so, and then you look out there and you actually look at Alipay, which is now pushing a billion users. But they basically, their, their value proposition to wallet providers is, I will invest in you. So I'll be on your cap table you will adopt my proprietary standard and then you're part of the Alipay network. So they've stitched together hundreds of millions of wallets throughout Asia Mm
1: -hmm. through Mm -hmm. using
2: this model and creating now a massive proprietary standard for interoperability amongst wallets and the merchants that actually work with them. Uh, And I think that if you're a wallet provider, you should feel pretty threatened by Alipay because they seem to be doing really, really well. We actually think that using uh, technologies like Interledger Protocol, you can actually have a single standard, and you can actually stitch together all these different proprietary, all these different siloed networks into one single global payment network, and one single whether it's for P two P or for merchant services, and really enable that to happen everywhere. And so that's a big area that I think is is pretty exciting. In essence, like the next generation of digital wallets. I'm talking to you. I know you're a believer on that. Yep. Um, and then probably the third area we're focused on in the short term is around content creation. Mm-hmm. So we actually spun a team out of here. Our ex CTO. Uh, started a company called Coil, mm-hmm. which we spun out and we've partnered with, and they're really looking to take advantage of the micropayments aspect or the, the ability to do micropayments through XRP to change the way that you consume content online. And so if you look at consuming content, the vast majority of content today is either sitting behind a subscription paywall or is supported by advertising. Yeah, Do you guys run ads on this podcast?
1: Uh, we do not. Okay. Yeah. But your podcast provider may. That's true.
2: Which you don't have a whole lot of choice to. That's true. So you as a content creator, you basically either do it for free for some other business model. You try to get make the subscription work, which is pretty hard as a small content provider. Yeah. Or you sell your users information to one of the big networks with primarily a Google, a Facebook, an Apple, uh, which is not necessarily great for you as a content creator. We think that it should be very simple for you to be able to, for a user to be able to pay for this content. So the example I give, I have lots. I subscribe to lots of different subscriptions. I don't subscribe to the Washington Post. I probably will at some point because I think their content's awesome and I mm-hmm. hit their paywall all the time. Yeah, same. Yeah. But I just don't want another subscription because right. I, I just forget about them and they show up on my credit card bill. If I could just drop a nickel or a dime or a quarter or even a dollar when I see one of those, I'd buy them all the time because the stories look really, really great. I just don't want them to sign up for endlessly recurring bills. And so we actually, uh, I've been working with Coil on a technology or standard called web monetization, which is really just, again, it's like ILP in the sense that it is a open standard that basically allows a content provider to mark up a web page and say, hey, I'd like to charge a small amount. And i enable the wallet provider to actually turn around and enable those payments.
1: Yep. People have been talking about uh, microtransactions for internet content since by Nescape days, right? It's just never happened for a plethora of reasons that I'm sure we can both. Articulate and, and so, how much of that is just based upon things like credit card companies versus the content providers themselves? I mean, you, you.
2: I remember in probably 2005 or 2006 when I was at Google, we dug deep into micropayments, yeah, and trying to come up with another business model for content. And about the best we could run up against or best we come up with was a user pays. Whatever, ten dollars a month,
1: right. and then you debit. it gets a that. bunch of
2: credit credits, right. and you go against that mainly because of the credit card exactly. rails. They were so painful. Right. Um, so whether that is sufficient enough to launch the industry, I don't know. But it was definitely. I'm sure you ran into the same thing if you're looking at it. That's Absolutely. like the solution. Everyone or the pro- the first problem we run into is the economics just don't make sense on the existing payment rails. And so one thing we hope is that by making the economics make sense, it'll go somewhere else. It's a good question. Content is a fickle industry people like free content. Right. But I think the world is starting to shift. You look at the power of these platforms uh, and the, the people's feeling towards platforms like Facebook and uh, just collection of data. And then I think there's lots of people who might consider not giving up their privacy or giving up their private information to these big platforms in exchange for being able to buy content.
1: Sure. I think the, the, the key for that, one of the keys for that working, of course, is that the consumer is just thinking dollars right I'm, I'm paying five cents i'm not thinking about you know 0. 0.0001 xrp or 0. 0.0001 bitcoin or whatever that translates into and so uh, in in our world today that generally means some kind of stable coin model how does that stable coin model relate to how xrp works and and how developers should think about you know creating real dollar based applications for using using spring yes yeah, stablecoins
2: are fascinating I'm sure you would agree with spending a lot of a lot of time for a long time looking at them and really trying to wrap our head around where are they going, what do they mean? I, I would say one thing that I think is interesting about stablecoins is when I look at a cryptocurrency, going back to our early example around IOUs versus cash, um, if I give you a Bitcoin, that's an asset. If I give you a USDC, that's a liability, mm-hmm. right? I'm giving you an IOU that. So in some ways we've kind of backed ourselves into the old system, which is like let me give you an IOU, right. um, or it even looks like the early days of fiat, where all the banks printed their own fiat, right? And eventually you might be like, I don't want that fiat because I don't trust that bank, and so it just it doesn't seem like the long term, the, the end state. It seems like a middle state or something. I'm not sure where the end state goes to. The you know one area when we look at this is in essence trying to get like allow users to understand the price comparison, and it's a good question. I mean, Libra decided to try to come up with a single stablecoin that looked more or less like a euro, a dollar, and a pound, which is not crazy. Right? It's like roughly a dollar is a euro is a pound, and if you kind of get close, people can get their head wrapped around it. Right. Um, I do think that eventually users may not necessarily care. Like it'll just be like money. Um, and you can hold XRP and denominate it in dollars. Mm-hmm. In fact, if I go into my Coinbase account, I hold XRP, and they just tell me the dollar value of it. I don't, they don't even tell me how many XRP it is. So, you, you know, you can do the math um, and, and try to sort out where that looks like. So that's one solution. I also think that kind of regardless of whether it's going into stablecoins or going into um, really interesting stablecoins like DAI that are baskets of other, uh, other cryptocurrencies, we still think that something like XRP is really important as the bridge currency and the liquidity provider amongst them. In essence, going back to the story I said before, it's like we think there's going to be more coins. It
1: sounds like there's going to be more stable coins, which is kind of crazy. Right.
2: Right. How many stable coins do you need? It's
1: incredible. I mean, we have we are approached every day, well, I'm approached every day by like some other startup that says, "Here's my new dollar stable coin developed in protocol X," and right. it's different. And and they explain to me how it's different. And nine times out of ten, I don't understand what they're saying. Right. <laughs> and I, I, I get this stuff. I think to some degree. So, so that brings up another question, which is you, you brought up Facebook's uh, Libra effort, and obviously it's getting a tremendous amount of press, uh, some some negative and you know a little bit positive. And I'd be curious, what's your perspective on why they chose this approach, and do you think it, it can work, and um, how does that differ from from where you see Spring and, and, and XRP going? I
2: think Facebook, you know, like they. Um, they ran into the animosity that people feel towards Facebook with Libra. I think a lot of the like, displeasure that whether regulators or government uh, government officials have is more about Facebook than about Libra, Libra per se and about right. the quote unquote power of Facebook, which generally I think is making people feel uncomfortable. And this is them saying like, we're so powerful, we can in essence become a bank that's not regulated, which again, people are just like, well, what are you going to do next? we go start an army. Um, which people I think would be uncomfortable with as well, although sure. I'm sure they've got a lot of security people working there. Sure. Um, so I, I think that's one of the, the main challenges of Libra is that it ran into not necessarily challenges around crypto, but challenges around Facebook. Yeah. Uh, I think we were surprised how negative the reaction was
1: to it. Although the reaction, I, I mean, I agree, I, I felt the same way, but it was, it's, it's it's really not from Joe Public, right? It's more, more so from... from from politicians yeah. and, and the average consumer probably has no clue what's going on and, no and, and I'm not even sure they care, right? Yeah. Is that do you, Would you agree with that?
2: I, I think you're probably
1: right. Yeah. Yeah. Although
2: so I do think it's a good question. Do you think the average consumer has animosity towards Facebook or is that just a politician?
1: I think if they have animosity towards Facebook, it's about the time suck that they've yeah. been basically bought into inadvertently and basically uh, it's a crack for them now. And, and many people will blame Facebook as opposed to themselves, right or wrong. I, right. think, I think that's a, a big part of what's happening there. Um, and, of course, when you're seeing, when you find out that you're basically in this kind of confirmation bias cycle, right, and, and you, you, you get away from it, you know, you don't know who to blame. And eventually you can blame yourself or right. whatever. But I guess, I guess one question is, once you get into payments and money transfer, uh, adding incremental value is actually very hard. Right? So if you think about it, going back to your MoneyGram question, I mean, MoneyGram and, and Western Union work because they're everywhere today. So if you're a new player getting into money transfer, you have to be better in some way. Right. And if you're just sending money between the U.S. and Mexico in Mexico, where there's 17 companies that can send a transfer between U.S. and Mexico for less money than it costs to send money between California and New York, why are you doing it in the first place? And I think the advantage that Facebook would have is, is once it's live everywhere, it's interesting but getting it live everywhere, regardless of whether it's a stored value system or blockchain could take 10 years. Yeah. I, I think that
2: the cost of a payment is going to the cost of moving a megabyte of information. Zero.
1: Zero. zero. Right. Uh, eventually
2: that's where it's going to get. And I mean, I think Facebook would agree and is happy happy to drive that to zero. And they did it with data, right? Right. They went into developing countries and basically said, we'll pay for yeah. your phone bill. We'll put
1: balloons up in the sky. Right. Right. Exactly. We we'll care. give you free data because yeah. we
2: just want to sell ads. Right. Um, I would venture to say that they look at payments the same way, which is like, if everyone has money, our ads business will go to the roof.
1: If I can just one click
2: buy something from one of the advertisers, the advertiser is gonna have a higher conversion rate, they have a higher conversion rate, they're happy to pay more for their ads, they pay more for their ads, Facebook makes a lot of money. Sure. So um, I think that's generally the way it looks like. To your point though, on if you're an entrepreneur getting into this space, you know, if the cost of payments is going to zero and you're looking like a business like Western Union or MoneyGram, the value in those companies is actually at the edges, right? It's where they actually have local on-ramps and local off-ramps, which are pretty hard to build. They take a lot of time. Yep, have sort the regulatory issues is kind of all over the world, um, and so those may not be the best the best kind of businesses to go towards.
1: Well, that's interesting because when you think about the intersection of information and ads, I would say that Google is actually a more important company even than Facebook right now, right? Uh, or arguably, anyway. But yet they've had kind of a. I know they. I've heard rumors of many people working on blockchain, I'm using air quotes, whatever that means, I have no idea. But publicly, they they very much have had a, a wait-and-see approach to anything related to uh, transformative um, technologies or plays in the payment space or cryptocurrency or blockchain. Um, you know, w- Do you have any guess as to why that is? Or do you, do you think it's strategic to them in some way? That's a good
2: question. I don't have any good guesses. I mean, Google's interesting in that they between, especially on Android, but even on Chrome, they're like lower in the stack than a company like Facebook. Right? Facebook's just an app in the Android world and just a website in the Chrome world. Not that those are the only world, but like that's kind of the only world. Um, and so you could imagine Google enabling payments that are lower down in the stack. Right? Like payments built into Android seems like it'd be pretty awesome. Yep. Payments built into Chrome, like we were talking about micro payments for content build that in a Chrome, it seems like it would be pretty awesome. Um, But I don't know. I don't have any insights as to why,
1: whether they're doing
2: anything or not.
1: I think their cash cow is, in the short term, less at risk than Facebook's. I think that's one thing, right, where the laws of competitive advantage are a little bit more in their favor than Facebook's maybe
2: in the midterm. Yeah, I mean, Facebook may have stronger network effects because it's a social network, um, but it also may be more likely to be like a fad may, fa- may die faster Right, like Facebook been, crushed MySpace right. um, whereas Google's business is much more of a core utility right. and it does have network effects from the data that they exactly. capture both on the search side and the ad side where they can gather a lot of data to make their searches better but doesn't which I don't think that's as strong as the fact that like my sister is on Facebook and if I want to see pictures of my niece I have to go on Facebook to see it yeah. um, so I think you're probably right yeah
1: so, so last, last hypothetical question. So, so Ripple as a company is obviously sitting on billions of dollars worth of XRP, which I would say probably makes the company kind of unpurchasable by anybody but a behemoth today, right? Because they'd effectively be purchasing, I guess, all the XRP, right? In order to buy the company. So, so independent of that, let's put the XRP aside. Let's say you were just a really well funded startup, right? And there was just all this XRP out there, but it wasn't necessarily yours. Who would be the logical acquirer? For Ripple, if they actually could afford. If you think it through, like in in the money transfer world, if I'm remitly, it sounds like a large logical acquirer might be money MoneyGram, right? But what would happen at scale to a company like Ripple if you had every large correspondent bank as a customer? Who would want to own Ripple at that point?
2: That's a very good question. I haven't thought too specifically about that, but we're trying to build a global payments network. So I guess the logical place to turn would be other global payments networks. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so maybe like a Visa or MasterCard. I guess. Or, yeah, Or even Swift, I guess, since you're trying to, I guess, kill them, right? Yeah.
2: Swift is a strange thing. That's a consortium. Right. I think it's a non-profit maybe, but it's a consortium for sure. That's yes. kind of owned by all the banks. Kind of Although like Visa used to be. I was going to say, right. same thing that Visa used to be. Yeah. Um, maybe like an Alipay. Hey? Hmm. I haven't because we can't really separate, the in our minds, we can't separate the XRP from the from the business. Right. So you don't have to. You, right. One,
1: you can't think about it. And right. financially, you don't have to. It right doesn't. Now, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. And so uh, I guess, uh, last question. So what do you do when you're not, uh, not working at uh, Ripple 15 hours a day? Sure. Well,
2: I have two young children. So I feel like my life at this moment is kind of working kids. Um, I do play a lot
1: of music. I'm mm-hmm. in a couple of different
2: bands. I play the guitar. Cool. I play the bass. So we've got a couple of gigs coming up here.
1: It's do you a, play the Ripple area. Christmas party I, played, party? I have not. I have not played
2: the... the Ripple holiday party. We played the Facebook seventh birthday party, I think, <laughs> um, which was pretty entertaining. Nice. And I've done a lot of other kind of random tech and nonprofit events
1: around uh-huh. town. Good. So I'll, I'll see you playing miscellaneous random bars in, in San Francisco. You'll find us. We're called CoverFlow, You can find us on, you can find us on Facebook and other places. Awesome. So after you look up CoverFlow, I guess you can get more detail on Spring at... Spring.io. So that's X-P-R-I-N-G dot I-O. You got it. All right. So um, thanks, Ethan. Um, my guest was Ethan Beard from uh, Ripple. And uh, that wraps it for another episode of Abra Money 3 Thanks so much for coming in, Ethan. Thanks, Bill. It was great. It was great to be here. All right. Thank you. Take care.
0: Thanks again for listening to the AbraMoney3.0 show. We hope you liked this episode as much as we did. If so, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and download the Abra app wherever you get your apps. Thanks again.